Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Conscious Capitalists. With myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sisodia. This week, we offer a very special event. We have a discussion on the nature of consciousness for human beings, leaders, and businesses. Joining us today is John Mackey, co-founder and former CEO of Whole Foods, and Sudguru, a well-known Indian mystic, who will be interviewed by Raj. We hope that you enjoy this very special episode. Namaskaram, Sadhguruji. Namaskaram. It's a great honor and pleasure and blessing to be in your presence today. Namaskaram, John. He's in Austin, Texas. Austin, okay. Yes. yes. As we have evolved on our journey of trying to bring consciousness into the world of business and leadership, and that's really, I think, what we want to focus on today. Can I do a two-minute chant? Oh, please. I would love that. Jananam Sukadham Maranam Karunam Milanam Maduram Smaranam Karunam Kalevashadiha Sakalam Karunam Samayadipate Akilam Karunam Wow, because uh, we're particularly talking to business people, business leaders who are killing themselves with success. <laughs> I'm sorry for being so blunt, but uh, if people out of their ambition and desire, if they try to upgrade their activity without upgrading themselves, they'll die of stress. Mm -hmm. I think that's being manifested in a massive way around the world. So, there are many ways to do it, using certain sounds, organizing yourself, your energies to perform a given activity is important, which unfortunately, the present day leadership, business, political, social, everybody has dropped it. And you see successful people are the most stressed out people. Yeah. Though success <laughs> is the sweetest thing in human life, People suffer success far more than failure. If you have failed in your life, once you come to terms with your failure, you can take a walk on the beach. But if you succeed, you are endlessly stressed out. Mm -hmm. This is mainly because you're upgrading activity without upgrading the machine. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and you're constantly having to run faster and faster. No, running faster is not the problem, mm. but you must have legs to run. If mm. you don't have legs to run, you fall on your face. Mm. <laughs> John, have you seen that? Being in the… being a CEO now for forty plus years, do you relate to what Sadhguru is saying? I think… I mean, obviously it's true for many people, but not for everyone, so… Fortunately, uh, not for everyone, <laughs> otherwise the world oh, would end. I mean, um, I, I was viewed building a company, you know, I, I, I created Whole Foods, co-founded it and ran it for 44 years and just retired a year ago from Whole Foods. And now I started a new company. And, you know, I learned to, um, I just learned to manage stress for the most part. And it's always there and it's about how conscious you are and what kind of practice, as you say, what kind of practices you do and and uh, to be able to not, is it stress or fear that disarms, disables people? I think a lot of times it's fear. And uh, if you can move past fear, then stress isn't such a big deal. I was reading in your book about people talk about managing stress, and I know you have a perspective on that. This whole thing about managing stress is coming from the basic assumption that stress is a natural part of life. If you're doing something that you love to do, if you're creating something that you care to create, why would you be stressed? I heard that some surveys are saying seventy percent of the American population hate their jobs. If you're doing something that you hate, obviously you must be stressed. <laughs> so, uh, about managing a business, well, there are challenges, but you take up that job mainly because you like challenges, you don't want to be sitting without any challenges in your life. Mm -hmm. More challenges you have, the more it means you're doing something significant. If you have no challenges in life, obviously you're not doing anything worthwhile. So, stress is not about the job. Stress is about your inability to manage your own thought process, your emotions, your chemistry, your energy. You're not able to manage this machine well mm -hmm. and you think it's a job. See, people who are in positions where they have to manage thousands of people and various situations, they are stressed. Just take an ordinary person who is doing a simple job. Just go talk to a man who is doing menial job out there. He's also stressed, mm -hmm. so it's not the job, it's the way you are or your ability to manage your own system. So, well, I don't want to take my own example, there are many people here who are uh, seven days of the week, we are all seven days of the week people. Because there are seven days in the week, what can I do? It's not my… this thing, only God was allowed one day rest. <laughs> we are not allowed one day rest. <laughs> Seven days, three and sixty-five days, eighteen hours a day, most of us are on. Well, most of them are not stressed, they're going about joyfully. Yeah, they look pretty relaxed to me. <laughs> they're not relaxed, I'm keeping them on their toes. Right, but <laughs> I hope they're not relaxed, but they're not stressed. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And you had what, seventeen million volunteers now, is that? Part-time volunteers are over seventeen million. Oh my God! Wow. Uh, yeah. Full-time volunteers are somewhere around probably six eighty to seven hundred people. 
full time mm -hmm. in the organization. Mm. Yeah, so building on what you said, it's not only the leaders, but everybody in business experiences a lot it's of stress. It's not just in business. Oh, yeah. Even the employees true. are stressed, they're not managing anything, just earning yeah. a living. Right. <laughs> and this is of course where your science of inner engineering comes in, which uh, of course we will talk about uh, in detail here. See, the question is not about a particular method of doing things. The question is about what is it that you want to address. You're trying to address how can I function without friction in the world? But, you know, right now because there is war-like situations going on in the world, always people will start talking world peace suddenly. <laughs> I've been to many of these world peace uh, <laughs> events at one time. For about three years, I think two and a half, three years, I attended many international conferences. It took me some time to realize that most of the people who are coming there, they're just conference hoppers, they just... it's their profession to mm -hmm. come. I was the only fool who was really thinking that there'll be world peace. <laughs> Once I realized, I stopped going to these conferences. So in one particular conference, <laughs> I don't know if I should narrate the whole story to you. On day three, I'm supposed to speak. Forty-two Nobel laureates are there. Mm in the conference. Some of the former heads of states are there. This is a whole thing with heads of state of various nations. When they are in power, they don't talk peace, they even wage war. But when they're out of power, they talk a lot about peace. <laughs> when they could do it, they don't do it. Or there may be many limitations, of course, I understand. But once they're out of power, they start talking peace because now they don't have the responsibility to manage the situation, which has many complexities, of course. So in a situation like this, on day three, one Nobel laureate, this is post-lunch session, after him I'm supposed to speak, he came up on the podium and he hid behind the podium, it's a big podium, and uh, he did not speak, he read. He had a file, he opened up, he started reading. And I kept on watching, listening to every word, trying to make sense out of it and watch, counting the pages, forty-two pages he read. Mm -hmm. Then I looked around, <laughs> definitely there was peace. People are sleeping. <laughs> without exception, without exception, except the security and the hotel staff, just everybody was out. Mm, yeah. Then I went up to speak and you know, with my bullhorn voice I chanted, then everybody woke up. <laughs> like a nightmare for them. <laughs> then I said, see, we're talking a lot about world peace. How many of you can put your hand on your heart and say that your mind is peaceful? At least they were honest. They said, no, our minds are not peaceful. Then I said, if you can't keep this one mind peaceful, how the hell are you going to make world peaceful? How many complexities are there in the world? How many issues are there in the world? How many types of people are there? How are you going to bring world peace when you can't make this one person peaceful? They said, yes, we admit we are not peaceful. Then I inquired, why is this without exception, all of them had dozed off? Mm. Then they said, no, Sadhguru, previous evening there was a Bacardi festival. <laughs> then I said, okay, free, free liquor <laughs> Well, you know, business, I know all uh, governments and organizations all have that, but 
if you look at the level of fear and stress in businesses, you talked about the disengagement and hating their jobs. There are statistics like heart attacks are 20% higher on Mondays that uh, 120,000 Americans... They don't die. want to die on a holiday. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> That's a positive way to look at it. 120,000 Americans die from stress, not the work itself, but the way we lead, manage and organize. See, it's not just in work. The way you organize your entire life is mm. like that. But before that, the way you organize yourself as a human being, how are you? You don't organize this and you try to organize everybody, of course you'll go crazy doing mm. that. And then the other element that you've talked about is the feminine, that uh, the world of business, government generally has been run for most of history by mass men and masculine energy. But men were run by ladies. Behind. To some extent, but in the, in the workplace, right? <laughs> that was always the excuse, yeah, you have the real power at home, but really, even in this country, women were not given the right to vote for hundred and almost fifty years after mm -hmm. the Declaration of Independence. Unfortunate, but the I think uh, those things come from some religious backgrounds. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, I don't think uh, by living in a society, you would think a woman shouldn't have franchise. I think that comes from religious beliefs that people have. Right, but the impact of that on the world, I mean, if you look at the history with all the conflict and all the wars, so would you say it's the needed See, balancing? War, war is a good way to keep the women down. Keep them down? Yes. When there is violence, man rules, all right? Mm -hmm. So this has been the way of humanity for a long time. There's hardly been any, you know, a certain period or a certain length of time without enormous amount of violence in most parts of the world. You will see this in India, where at one time, when Himalayan ranges under Indian Ocean was our protection, this is why we called Hindu. Mm. Himalayas and Hindu Sagara together, mm. it's called the Hindu or Hindustan. When that was a barrier for, you know, others to come and attack the country or the civilization that it was, at that time, women were on equal level mm. because we… Uh, they say in history, we don't know the exact this thing, there might have been small-scale violence, but nearly for 3,500 to 4,000 years, we spent without any major wars, mm. major sense of violence. Small things would have happened, of course. So because of that, women were on equal level on all levels, mm. but once invaders came, once violence came, naturally you suppress women because that is the nature of physical violence. Mm. And so, what is the answer to that today? I mean, look, we're not in the workplace dealing with violence. Well, if we… <laughs> if we make our investment options different in the sense, right now the largest industry on the planet is arms and armaments. Instead of that, if we make it into many things, if we make it into education, if you make it into human well-being of health and well-being and whatever else that matters to human beings, well, slowly women will rise. Once there is stability in a society, women will naturally come up. You don't have to do any woman's liberation or emancipation. Create a stable society, naturally they will come up because it is only a biological and physical difference which is ruling this discriminatory process. Mm. But uh, the fact that we don't have women in leadership, I mean, is that like a chicken and egg problem, that uh, we're not going to create those conditions without enough feminine energy? 
in the world? See, that is not true today in the corporate, there are so many women leaders. In They're India, up, yeah. now women are getting thirty-three percent reservation in the parliament mm -hmm. and already in the panchayat level, nearly fifty percent are women. Mm -hmm. So, in countries where there is no religious barrier in people's minds, once there is no violence, they will rise, you can't stop it. There is no need to do anything else, if you just create a stable society mm -hmm. and remove ideas which are coming from certain dogmas, if you, these mm -hmm. two things happen, they will naturally rise, you don't need to help them. Mm. Well, let's talk about uh, In consciousness. In yeah. nearly seventy percent of responsible positions are held by women. In where? In Isha Foundation. Across. Oh, your foundation. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this is not because mm -hmm. they have concessions as women. No concessions. Mm -hmm. they, have, they are there out of their competence. Right. And that's important. Well, let's talk about consciousness in business. You know, where, where do you see the typical <laughs> level of consciousness in business, the way we think about business, the way we operate business? You know, our movement came into existence because we felt Capitalism is an incredibly powerful idea that has elevated humanity dramatically in the last 200 years, uh, but also that we need higher consciousness applied to it. Like, why do we do business? It's not only to make money. That, as you said, that's, that just leads people towards stress and, uh, you know, unhappiness. Money is not the answer for everything. We need the money, but also we need the consciousness See, about money is creating. not the problem. People are thinking it's because of money that people are stressed. People who don't have money are also seriously stressed, isn't it? <laughs> it's a very mm -hmm. wrong notion. These but are all coming from money? certain yeah. morals and stuff elsewhere. But genuinely, you look at it, people who don't have money, are they all joyful and no, bursting? Yeah, no, no, no. No, they I'm are not, also yeah. super stressed. So money is not the issue. Your inability to manage your own system is the main issue. You don't know how to manage this very complex machine, which you call as human mechanism. <laughs> because most people have not even opened the user's manual. Mm. How does this work? There's no idea. You want to make the world work without making this work. There is no other… there's only one problem on the planet, human being. Mm. Because of our intelligence, our cerebral capability, if we don't manage this one creature properly, everything will be a problem. If you manage this one well, everything will be a solution, everything will become fantastic. So, without addressing the individual ho human being, we want to address situations. Situations are a consequence of how individual human beings are behaving, isn't it? Society is a consequence of how individual human beings are behaving. A nation or a world is a consequence of how all of us are behaving. Thinking, feeling, emoting and acting, this is the consequence. Now you're trying to fix the consequence. Don't fix the consequence. If you fix the source, consequence will be great. So should we then start with leaders because leaders impact so many people, right? So the consciousness of leaders becomes critical? See, today it's a democratic process in most nations at least. It is a democratic process. Democracy means tomorrow you could be the president of this nation. Possible, I'm not saying I'm going to make you all right. <laughs> it's for the people. <laughs> well, I wasn't born here, so it's not even a possibility. <laughs> it, it is for the people to decide. Right. But I'm saying just about anybody who's just today walking on the street could become the leader of this nation if they have the necessary competence and the capability to market themselves up. 
or if they show a vision which uh, admired by people, they will rise. So when this is the thing, just saying we must fix the leader is not a way, it's both ways. Both the top end and the bottom end needs right. to be attended. So in a democracy, the people are the ones yes. who select the leader. But one thing yeah. that I see, I'm with you today, mainly because I see that, you know, some time ago, let's say two hundred years ago or maybe five hundred years ago, you must understand in… at least in the western part of the world, not in the east, in the western part of the world, the most dominant leadership was religious leadership. They decided everything. Even though there were kings, mm -hmm. they decided everything. But later on, as the kings and the nations built their military machines, the military leaders started deciding. They were the power. But in the last hundred years, democratically elected leaders are the power. But if the business leadership conducts themselves right, in the next fifteen to twenty-five years, it is the business leaders who will shape the… how this world will be. So this is why conscious whatever, conscious business is important. You're calling it capitalism, I don't subscribe to that word because I think the age of capitalism is over. Right now it's market economy. That means if you or me have a great idea, and we are… we show some competence to execute the idea, capital is not a problem. If you look back hundred years ago, probably in United States, fifty families had access to capital. Nobody else had access to capital. The same thing goes everywhere in Europe, India, wherever you take it. But today, capital is available to anybody who shows competence and has a capability to execute something. So it's become a market economy. So market-driven means people-driven economy. In a way, business has become democratic, but business leaders have not become democratic. They're becoming autocratic, for this they'll pay a price. If they don't transform themselves, they'll miss this opportunity to have the ability to shape this world the way we want it, because they're still thinking politicians should do it. No, <coughs> businesses can do it. John, do you have a thought on that, uh, that we are past the age of traditional capitalism, that is really the market economy where capital is not a constraint anymore? Capitalism and the market economy are synonyms. He's just taking, he's just saying that capitalism back in the 19th century, when capital was a constraint, it, it, it's less of a constraint today than it was back in the 19th century. But I think when most people say capitalism, I mean, that was given, that name was given by Karl Marx. It wasn't, it was the enemies of capitalism that gave it its name. So a market economy, free market economy, capitalism, it's one where the government's not making the decisions. That's, that's a market economy, that's capitalism. When the government's making decisions, that would be, or controlling everything, that would be socialism or communism. So um, I, I see, he, he's saying maybe the word capitalism has outlived its time. It probably has. I, I oftentimes will say market economy or free market economy because capitalism is such a, um, so many people react to it. It's sort of a trigger word that, um, you know, unless I say conscious capitalism, I oftentimes avoid capitalism because I think it's a trigger word that people misunderstand and get reactive about. So, so he and I, I think are in agreement basically. And then you've talked about inclusive economics, right? So how should we practice, the, even in the market economy, how should we think about it differently than 
it is serving customer needs and it's making money for the owners, but there's more to it, right? How do you think about that? See, the terms that are floating around in the society, for example, let's say, uh, this is particularly I see in the West Coast, somebody is referred to as a movie mogul. Mogul mm -hmm. is a horrible word for us mm -hmm. because they came and did terrible things to us, mm -hmm. okay? <laughs> terrible means yeah. worse than what has happened in uh, whatever European holocaust and stuff like that, worse mm -hmm. than that. It's just mm -hmm. that it's not well recorded. Mm -hmm. So, why are you calling a business leader a mogul? Because you're seeing it as a position of power. Mm. You're not seeing as a position to impact the world in a tremendous way. So this whole attitude that somebody becomes like a king, actually many people are calling… being called as the king of this, king of yeah. that. Yeah. The word <coughs> king and mogul and all this stuff should go out of our vocabulary because when you talk about conscious… Uh, well, we will stick to the word capitalism, I have no particular resistance, I was just trying to define that uh, it is not the capital which is determining, it mm -hmm. is your ability which mm -hmm. is determining, which is a fantastic thing actually. Mm -hmm. That human ability, yeah. individual capabilities will determine. Not somebody has got a heap of gold in his house, he decides. That's just like the government, right. all right? right? So things have changed and it's good in the last century these things have changed across the world except in a few places of course. So, when we talk about this, see for example, you're running a business. In India, they brought in what is called a CSR. That is a two percent extra tax on all businesses, corporate social responsibility. Though most of our projects are funded by CSR, I oppose the CSR. People thought I'm crazy. I said, see, you're asking an industry to build a school, to build a hospital, to build an old age home. Don't do this. It's not their and job. above all, mm -hmm. when I start the business, you said the tax is thirty percent. Today you said two percent extra for schools. Arey, don't change the goalposts for me. Tell me what is it, I'll decide whether I want to do this business here or go somewhere else. Don't change the goalpost at least for a considerable amount of time. Let's say when I say considerable, in the life of a business, twenty to twenty-five years, there should be no taxation changes for the corporate and the business entities. Because I plan my investments, I plan my business based on what are my costs. Suddenly you change the goalpost, what am I supposed to do? I will do s uh, something goalmal. You don't know why, I mean, John won't understand what's goalmal. <laughs> hanky-panky <laughs> Some hanky-panky yeah. I have to do because suddenly you're charging extra tax on me. So, this should go. I said, building schools, why are there are enough schools? Well, the government should build or you allow private entities to build. Right. But mm. why are you asking a business to invest in school, in ecological services, in this and that? No, no, they must have social responsibility. I'm saying, craft the business itself as a social responsibility. This doesn't mean you don't make profit. Right. Because profit is important. Pro if there is no profit, nothing is sustainable, all right? Mm -hmm. So business means this in my definition. Please, uh, John is there, you are there, if you have something else you tell me. In my understanding of business, people all commenting and making, uh, you know, all kinds of things about me because I'm with business leaders. Oh, he is a corporate guru, what is he doing here? This, this, I'm saying business means always two parties involved.
I have business with you means there's a transaction between you and me. And with the transaction should be in such a way that both of us benefit. Right. This goes for the marketplace, this yeah. goes for marriage also. Yeah. If both the parties do not benefit, no relationship will sustain, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Whether it's between individual human beings or organizations or nations, whatever it is, if both the parties do not benefit, there is no continuation of transaction, it's called robbery. If you yep. do a transaction, yeah. only I benefit all the time. It's called robbery, mm. it's not called a business. So this is why business is important, because it's a transaction where both the parties benefit. But we could take this further. I'm… I'm not taking liberties, uh, John, I'm just using your business as an example, I'm not taking liberties as to how you should run your business. But I'm saying, for example, Whole Foods. Because I'm saying this because lots of people are involved in that. Only once I've been into your store, the one opposite to the Central Park in New York City, I was seriously impressed that the amount of, you know, stuff that is there, good quality stuff, I was just… because when I look at something, I look at what is involved, the procurement of all these items from across the world is… is something that individual people can never do, all right? That's an important thing. Common people cannot go and procure this from here, that from there and everywhere. A business can do that. So once it has done that, now uh, I'm not suggesting this to John, but I'm just saying one way to build a business is, see you make all the employees into shareholders of some kind. That some businesses are already doing. You also make the customers into shareholders. Suppose you have a million customers. If you tell them some minute percentage you give them, all right, that if you come to us and buy this much in a month's time, you become a shareholder, the profit that we make, you get a bit of it. That can be calculated how, according to the business's convenience. But the thing is, your customer base is ensured for a long-term process, unless you goof up the whole thing. As long as you maintain the quality of your product, and profitability of your business, everybody is interested, the customer is not seeing how to get a discount. The customer is seeing how you make profit yeah. because he gets that, a little bit of that. So I'm saying if you build partnership like this, there is no need for corporate social responsibility. Right. This is a social responsibility by itself. So engaging everybody into the business process makes everybody pro-business. Right now I'm seeing, it's just distressing to see, even in United States, in the business schools, all the students are beginning to… and even the… many of the professors are beginning to talk like they're socialist. <laughs> why are they in a business school? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah they're really anti-business, yeah. yeah. This is dangerous. Yeah. Uh, that is not <laughs> unfortunately funny, it's dangerous that a nation which has thrived because of its free enterprise, now you're talking about socialism simply because there are uh, homeless people and many other people who are in the, those categories which are suffering. But there is a way to engage them in activity rather than doling out things to them because doling out things has never worked in any part of the world. Yeah. No, absolutely. So you're getting at some of the core pillars that John and I have dedicated our lives to, the, the stakeholder mindset. So the employee is not just an employee, they're a stakeholder, which means 
they feel like they're owners I'm of saying the even the customer should become a stakeholder. And there are some examples of companies that have even done that with the customers. Society should be considered a stakeholder, investors of course, the suppliers, etc. And then you also pointed to… You can to even allow the customers to invest. Yeah, I just course, came to yeah. buy a pound of bread, but if you tell me, you just display there, this is how much profit Whole, Whole Foods is making. If you want, you can invest your savings here. Well, it'll be attractive for me because I am a customer and I'm benefiting yeah. and I would also like to have a share in that. But just my buying itself must make me a, sh a shareholder because yeah. after that, you don't have to do any marketing. Your pro produce is good, yeah. people will anyway come because you have captured them, you have embraced them in a way. Embrace them, not captured. Yeah. John, I'm sure you have thoughts about this. Well, he said so many things that I agree with. Uh, you're not surprised about that, I think, Raj. Based on well, I agree as well. Yeah, of but course. One of the important things he said, I want to underscore, he didn't say it, but I'm going I'm to add to it, is that business is basically non-coercive. It's based on voluntary exchange for mutual gain. No one has to trade with the business. They're not forced to. And his point about the government adding a tax on so that for schools is, is actually right on. I mean, I think he's completely correct. That's an added cost to business. What is, why, why should businesses be in the school business? Why should that tax be there? It's, it's, it's not a free lunch. You're taking it from other uses. The business could deploy that money that in a more constructive way. And mm. once you understand that business is about a voluntary exchange for mutual gain between the people that are exchanging with each, with each other, you understand the fundamental ethics of business, why it's a good thing. Because no one is forced to trade with the business if they don't want to. Customers don't have to trade if they don't want to. Employees don't have to work there. Suppliers don't have to trade, nor do people have to invest. So business has to somehow or another please all of these constituencies, all these stakeholders, if it's going to flourish and prosper. So it makes it a fundamental force for good. I don't know about all the customers automatically owning. I was at, when he was saying that, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, who's in control of the business? Someone has to have control of the business. And, and that's a big ethical question. It's like, should the investors be the ones in control? And if they're not, then if the investors aren't in control of the business, then it seems to me that all their money is going to be expropriated by the, the people that are in control of the business. So it sounds great to have Whole Foods was a public company for most of our history. So if customers wanted to buy stock, they could. We did give stock options to all of our team members, so they had they had a piece in the stake. Suppliers could invest, but that's an advantage of a publicly traded company. Your stock's for sale every day, and people can invest in it. And I just don't know how you could, you know, we had, we literally had million, tens of millions of customers at Whole Foods. I don't know how we could each give them a little piece of stock. That would be, the administration of that would be impossibly difficult. Yeah. How would they sell it once they got it? <laughs> But then, of course, there are companies like REI, which are organized like a co-op. So you actually, right. when you sign up as a customer, you get a dividend. But the, the other point you were making about the CSR law in India, I was on the board of a public company at the time. And when that rule came down, the particular rule stipulation was you cannot spend that money on anything to do with the business. Mm-hmm. It has to be outside of the business. Now that's the idea. Right? It's a social responsibility. Right. But when Whole Foods created five foundations, but every one of those foundations is connected somehow to the business. So they have the whole Planet Foundation, which is micro-lending in about 65 countries to create more organic and natural food producers. So that helps them and helps the business. They have the Global Animal Partnership, which is changing the treatment of animals in factory farms, elevating to humane standards. 
right? Again, that helps them, their customers now look for those labels. The whole Cities Foundation, the whole Kids Foundation. But the point is to do philanthropy in a way that also serves the whole, right? The, the company. The company is also better off. Society is better off. The animals are better off, right? The children in the schools are getting healthier lunches. But India did not allow that. They specifically banned you doing anything from a philanthropic standpoint that actually that relates to a, what you that's know. That's for a certain reason because uh, they invest these things in their own family foundations and oh, yeah. do things like that. Right, so, right. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of insider kind yes. of... Yeah, they get around the... When you make it mandatory, then people look for loopholes and they look to get around it. So it kind of defeats I'm saying that directly purpose. if the government says instead of 30% tax, it's 32%. And government spends those two percent right. on building whatever is better, that is better yeah, than yeah. changing the goalpost. Yeah. I'm mainly talking about changing the goalpost. For a business, don't change the goalposts. Once yeah. you set something, at least for twenty years, there must be no changes in taxes and mm. other rules that govern a business. Otherwise, how do you build a business? Sadhguru, I want to shift gears to education. You know, I, I did my MBA and then I did a PhD in business, so six years of business education, and I think back on it now, that it was all about the head and the wallet, but I was never inspired and I was never touched emotionally. I was never engaged at that level, right? And it, so I think we are missing something in our education because business impacts people's lives in so many ways. And now with conscious capitalism, I find that I'm constantly inspired that this is something that is doing, you know, beautiful things in the world. And you are touched emotionally as well by what you're doing. Do you think that's important, the heart and the soul be oh, connected well, to our work? I won't go that far. Don't put your soul and all in that. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the important thing is to run a business in a sensible way. When I say sensible, it should work for all involved. The customer, the shareholder, the person who is running the business and people who are working for the business, it should work for everybody. That's a sensible solution. Anything else is not sensible because it won't work for long. It… you can exploit somebody, but it won't be for long, it will end somewhere. So, unless you have guns pointed, you can never continue exploitation. Even with guns, you cannot continue exploitation beyond a certain point. Anyway, business doesn't have guns, I hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even yeah. if you're in the gun business, you can't point a gun at somebody and run your business. So, business is a transactional process in the society. And today the world has become so transactional, I'm not one hundred percent for it, but it's become that way because, see, today marketing does not mean that you are putting out your product and saying, see, this is what you got, are you interested? No, marketing means forceful hypnotization of people. You got to eat my product, you got to drink my product, you got to consume my product. So. This level of marketing has gone to a kind of an overkill or overconsumption of everything. Most people are buying things that they may not use in their homes. Yeah. Most <coughs> houses have become warehouses. Yeah. Yeah. Heaps of things that they never use. Mm -hmm. And this... we have a separate storage place elsewhere, you know, <laughs> in addition. <laughs> yes, and probably they'll never open that storage place, place only when somebody dies, somebody else goes and opens all the goodies <laughs> It's unfortunate human yeah, beings have yeah. become like this because instead of our sense, our desiring process is driving everything that we do. Is something wrong with the desire? No. 
It is just that your desires are too constipated, that's my problem. Mm. That human desire is too constipated. This constipated desire is called ambition. But why don't you have a larger vision to create something fantastic in your life, which will be profitable for everybody involved? When I say profitable, profit is not just in terms of money. Mm -hmm. Profit is in terms of how rich your life becomes. This doesn't mean money is not involved, money is just one element of that. But right now business schools are training people, just where is the maximum money, that's where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter, I don't care for what they're doing, but I will go there and work, because they, they are giving me something more than what somebody else would give. This must go, human beings need to be cultured, educational institutions particularly, this very carnivorous kind of uh, education, this is... When I say mm -hmm. carnivorous, I'm saying predatory mm -hmm. kind of education. Yeah, yeah. Go get, go get. No, go create something. Go make an impact. Mm -hmm. Get, what will you get? There's nothing to get, all right? Well, if I speak like this, people say, oh, Sadhguru is getting philosophical, he doesn't know business. Well, I'm telling you whether you're doing business or spirituality or politics or you're doing nothing in your life. Anyway, all of us will die. And when we die, there's no container service. This is for everybody, mm -hmm. this is a common service, I'm saying, <laughs> all right? Or common absence of service for all of us. Mm -hmm. Business people <coughs> don't have container service in the end to pack all their things and go. So mm -hmm. when this is the case, sensible living means that you make it rich in every possible way. If you don't make it rich in every possible way, you just say, I have so many billion dollars stored up. Uh, these billions will mean nothing because I'll tell you, before starting the Safe Soil movement, I was in the United States drumming up support with various influencers and stuff. Then one day I see, I'm sitting in one place and there's one young man who's running around like his tail is on fire. I said, hey, what are you up to? Sadhguru, I want to make one billion dollars, I want to make one billion dollars. I said, that's all. You come tomorrow morning, I'll give you one billion dollars. Really, Sadhguru? I said, yes, you come, I'll give you. Then eight of his friends were sitting here quietly. <laughs> I said, see these eight guys, I'm going to give all of them ten billion dollars. Sadhguru, Sadhguru, why <laughs> ten for them, only one for me? I said, just now you said your life's nonsense is about one billion dollars. Mm. Now if I give them ten, you'll again become unhappy <laughs> because somebody has ten, your friend has ten and you have only one. <laughs> so this nonsense has to go, yeah. this excess has to go. Can I tell you a little joke because it's getting Please, Is it Shankaran Pillai or somebody else? Yeah, why not Shankaran Pillai? <laughs> Shankaran Pillai was working in the hilly regions of Himalayas, where there are lots of people who are tantrics and mystics who do all kinds of things. There he went to meet one mystic or tantric in the mountains. So uh, then he said, my parents are aging and they're in Bangalore and uh, you know, can you do something for them? Tantric said, no problem, and uh, he produced some pills, and he said, these pills, every time you… your parents take this, ten years of their life will go away, age will go away, and they'll become younger. He sent a bunch of pills. So, Shankaran Pillai mailed it to his parents. Then after a few months, he came back home. The door was ajar, and uh, he walked in, and there there was a young man changing diapers on an infant in the cradle. He said, who are you? What are you doing here in my house? He said, 
Oh, Shankar, don't you recognize me? I'm your father. <laughs> I last fifty years and here I am, I'm a twenty-year-old man. Where's mother? This is her, she took all of them. <laughs> she took all the pills <laughs> and she became an infant. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so this excess is <laughs> going no, on everywhere. Much. This yes. excess will not be settled by business leaders. Mm. It is important human beings learn to look at their life more comprehensively. How does I… how do I enrich my life? Well, you know, in this country we spend about 1.4 trillion on marketing ads, coupons and junk mail. And that's how my journey started. I was a marketing professor, I got a PhD in marketing. And I had some shame about that. You know, my inner dialogue was that my father got a PhD in plant breeding and cytogenetics, that he wanted to cure world hunger. And I got a PhD in marketing, and all I'm trying to do is to sell more junk <laughs> to people who don't need it, right? And so I had this sense of lack of meaning, purpose, and almost shame about it. And then I said, is there a different way? Are there companies that don't spend so much money, and yet customers love them? And that's how I found John and Whole Foods because they were spending 95% less than the industry on marketing. No, they didn't have a mark chief marketing officer, <laughs> they didn't have an ad agency, right? They did a few things in the community. See, for example, the pharmaceutical companies are spending 90% <laughs> more on marketing than, than on research. Yeah. They should be spending yeah. on research, yeah. but they're spending on marketing. Their business is to produce better and safer medications. Mm -hmm. But no, they want to push what they already have. Their whole thing is, we've already invested, so we have to get yeah. back the money. Yeah. Yeah. See, once you go like this, there is no end to it. This is why a balance between public institutions of research and stuff like that, and private organizations which do transactional process mm -hmm. in the society, there must be some kind of balance. If you let this balance go, if business is run by the government, it will become a total mess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if all research... I saw that in India. All yeah. research and science, yeah. not yeah. in India anymore. Oh, you, the public sector is What good. time did you leave India? I left uh, 81. Ah, that's a long time ago. The public sector come. You know, it used to take 14 years to get a telephone. No, no, that was a it's, long time yeah, ago. Yeah, when the, when the government was more in control of today, everything. Today, 1980, we will say the ancient times in India <laughs> because India has... I know, I leaps know. and bounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> India has the maximum number of cell phones on the planet right now. Oh yeah, no, no, I go there frequently. So, that's a different matter. Yeah. But I'm saying, if research, development and certain things must be run by public trust, mm. because if the private runs that, it'll go in a different direction. If government tries to run the business, it'll go in a different direction. So, just broadly, I'm not saying this is an absolute. Broadly, we can divide like this. Well, anyway, national security is handled by a government, all right. Basic public services are handled by a government, it's all right. But that also can be transferred to private mm. in many ways because mm. they'll deliver better services like phones, for example, yeah, right. like postal department, for example, everything has moved to private. But fundamental research, science, to some extent, I would say education, fundamental education, sciences, must be in the hands of the government, otherwise it'll become too transactional. Yeah. Uh, I must say, a whole lot of research regarding health and stuff that is being thrown out by various universities, which are all funded by private agencies, are unfortunately not above the board. Mm. I want to come back to leadership. You know, one of the things that struck me when I got to know John, and he said, uh, John, you'll remember this, 
He said, Whole Foods is my ashram. We are in your ashram here today. And John would refer John to his... John should come. John, you should visit us. <laughs> I just got back to Austin after being gone for four months. I wasn't oh. eager to leave again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But maybe in Coimbatore you will come, you know. But John, you want to expand on that? Why you thought about Whole Foods as your ashram? Like, what, is the, what does that mean? Well, what it meant for me was that it was leading Whole Foods Market and being in relationship with all these stakeholders and having this higher purpose, it helped me grow spiritually. It was, it was, I had to continue, you know, that Raj, when you see my book, my book is my book, the whole story, we'll talk about my spiritual growth. That's, that's one of the major themes of the book. And so much of that personal growth came through leadership and being in business and failing sometimes and, and having to know people better having to be able to please customers, keep all the different stakeholders happy. So Whole Foods was my ashram. That's how I grew spiritually. It was, um, uh, uh, I, if I hadn't done Whole Foods, I'd be a very different person than I am today. Mm -hmm. I, and so I think business can be, if you, if you, if you see it as, a, as an exercise in spirituality and, and spiritual growth, it can actually be people's ashram. I mean, uh, and I had various mentors along the way and uh, went through my, you'll see when you read the book, but uh, yeah, that's how I mean it is my ashram. It's, it's where I grew spiritually. John, uh, now that you said that, let me explain this to you. In the yogic sciences, and if all of us look at our life sensibly, we will see there are only four ways in which a human being can grow. You can use the body or physical activity and grow. This is… this we call as karma yoga, yoga of action. You can use your intelligence and grow. This is called as jnana yoga, yoga of intelligence. We can use our emotions and grow. This is called as bhakti yoga, yoga of devotion or emotion. And there is kriya yoga, which is the yoga of transforming our basic life energies into a different possibility. These are the only four ways. So, whether it's business or music or uh, politics or whatever, we can use every activity to grow and become human beings who are a bigger possibility than what they were when they started. It's not just in terms of money, in terms of social positioning that we have. But as individual human beings within ourselves, we can grow by using any one of those things. And it's fantastic that you said that, I like that, that Whole Foods is your ashram. I have not visited Whole Foods in probably nine years. I must come one time and visit, <laughs> if it's an ashram, I should be coming also <laughs> I've retired from Whole Foods, so I've, I've moved out of the ashram, but... <laughs> There's a new guru at Whole Foods now, you know. That, uh... But I agree, I mean, every… we can grow as human spiritual beings, you know, I agree with the four and I… to a certain extent I've used all four of those in my own… my own growth and transformation and, you know, I still have, you know, still have a long way to go. I… you know, but the joke I… it's only partially a joke that I actually married my guru. My… my wife is a very oh, enlightened… Oh, oh, The very first time I met her… This is my, getting confessional. Yeah, the very first time I met her, which was 33 years ago, almost 34 years ago, immediately when I met her, I had a look, my inner voice, my, 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 
inner soul said, this woman is more conscious and awake than you are. And my ego immediately rejected that. No, no, it couldn't be. I'm old. I'm seven years older than she is. I can't be right. And, and then as the, as the night wore on, it kept whispering to me, listen to her. She's very wise. She's very awake. And uh, yeah, so they, I have such authority issues. I have trouble following authority. I'm, I'm, I'm not a good disciple, you might say. So the universe played this trick on me. And that I ended up marrying my guru. <laughs> <laughs> so I've learned to, that she, you know, her so philosophy. You had to listen. You had to listen. <laughs> her, her philosophy, I did. I did. And her philosophy is, which I haven't been able to practice it quite as well as her, but I completely adhere to it as is the guiding principle. She said, John, it's very simple, really. Just love everyone all the time. So that's that's my mantra that's what i am trying to practice <laughs> i must tell you two things because you you confessed all this to us i must tell you two things one is a joke another is a real situation that i went through uh this is uh, almost a decade ago one of the top international companies which is of course founded in america but it's across the globe right now of uh, 25 top executives i was doing a two-day event for them and I had nine volunteers who were doing things for me because this whole organization is run by volunteers, nearly 800 full-time volunteers and over 17 million part-time volunteers. So, after the first day is over, on the second day, these uh, executives asked me, Sadhguru, where do you get such people? You know, they are always looking for attrition. <laughs> so, I said, you don't get such people, you have to make them. How do you make them? I said, you have to make them fall in love with you. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? I said, first you have to fall in love with them. They said, oh, they don't pay us for that <laughs> About the four things, <laughs> about the four ways of karma, kriya, jnana and bhakti, there is an old yogic story. On a certain day, four yogis were walking in the forest and suddenly, a wild storm broke loose, a very severe storm. So they started running, looking for shelter. Uh, the Bhakti Yogi, who is a devotee, knows all the geography of temples. He said, there is an ancient temple here, let's run there. So they all ran to the temple, not in devotion, not looking for God. They ran there looking for shelter from the rain or the storm. They ran inside and they found all the walls were gone long time ago, just the roof and a few pillars were there. So they went and huddled up. The storm got more and more severe, started blowing from every direction. They had no other way, they got closer, closer. Then they all came together. The only place that was protected was where the deity was. So they hugged, they huddled up, hugging each other and hugging the deity. Suddenly God appeared. Then all of them wondered, why now? We did so many things and you didn't come. Now when you're just escaping a storm, why are you here? So God said, I've been waiting for a long time, at last you four idiots got together. <laughs> because it's very important that all these four aspects are on within us. Our action must be liberating for us, our thought must be liberating for us, our emotions must be liberating for us, and our energies also must be liberating for us. If we don't do all the four, then it is a very hard task. This is the struggle that most 
spiritual seekers go through because they try to drive their car on one wheel. If you drive it on one wheel, even if you become such an expert and you drive it on one wheel or two wheels, one thing that will happen is nobody else will be willing to go with you in the car, nobody else will be willing to drive with you on the street. <laughs> That's called ascetic life. <laughs> you know, I just saw a message this morning that today is National Bosses Day in the US. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't and know they had a day. There is a day, but you know that word I boss… I thought they took every day. <laughs> as boss's day, that's true. Like my father used to say when I called one day and it's happy Father's Day, he said in India every day is Father's Day, okay? But going back to this idea of boss, you know, it comes from the Dutch word bas, which means master in slavery. Oh, I thought it's a fish. No, that's <laughs> <laughs> But what do you think of that? You know, my father's last words on his… my last conversation before he died was, Raj, you are your own boss. So do you think people should have a boss? Do you think this idea of a leader as a boss, what do you think of that in terms of leadership? See, uh, if there is no leadership, most people cannot stretch themselves beyond their own limits. So if a leader inspires them to stretch themselves beyond all limitations, then you call him a leader. I'm… I'm I mean, I think we are playing with words, mm -hmm. but if… Uh, somebody whips you and gets you to stretch. I usually call them slave drivers, but you call them a boss. It's mm -hmm. just terminology, I think. Mm -hmm. Whether you do it by inspiration or by force. But that's not okay, right? You don't recommend that. No, it's very important that you must see the very need for a leader in the world on various levels is that individual human beings may not know what their limits are. And they may just limit themselves because… simply because of their way of thinking and feeling. Somebody has to make them stretch themselves beyond that, otherwise they'll become very limited possibilities. So this whole thing, you know, we have changed the whole terminology now, we're uh, working with various companies in India, this human resource. Mm -hmm. So we started a whole program called Human is Not a Resource. This source. is what the program is called. Human, human is, is not a resource. Yeah. Human is a potential. A human being is like a seed. All depends on how you nurture them. If you nurture them well, they will become very big trees, otherwise they'll become stunted, whatever. But when you say something is resource, a resource is something which is already defined as to what it can mm -hmm. do, what it cannot do. A possibility means right. that you have not defined the possibility. There's an endless possibility. Yeah. So if you keep that possibility open in everybody around you and constantly inspire them, to explore that possibility because unfortunately, lot of individuals want to define themselves. This is all I am, this is how I am, this is my nature, this is my limitation. If somebody doesn't keep on destroying their boundaries, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they will try to, you know, encircle themselves with boundaries because this is instinctual from another time. In the evolutionary process of life, we still have a reptilian brain within us, which is always trying to draw boundaries. Yeah. To help people to go beyond those boundaries, because we have become human beings, we are not human creatures. All creatures like boundaries because they are ruled by their instinct of survival. But unfortunately today, what we are looking at as wealth, what we are looking at as success, is just survival instinct glorified. The people's whole idea of doing well is, I have more than you. Mm. 
so I am feeling great. I have more than you and I am feeling great means I enjoy your failure. Mm -hmm. This I call sickness, not joy. Unfortunately, we are encouraging this sickness from education level, from kindergarten to business schools into businesses in the society, this must go. Only then human beings will explore their own potential. That is what an ashram means. I hope that's what John also meant by an ashram, that mm -hmm. people can explore their potential, not limit themselves with a definition. Any comments, John, or you want to add anything there? No, I agree. Said it very well. Yeah. It's hard to expand on what the Sadhguru said. I, the phrase that I use, Sadhguru, is, uh, is the human beings are a source, right? Not a resource. Resource can only go down. Source can generate continuously. Again, it's terminology. It's just uh, looking at it that way. Uh, I want to talk about uh, John's devoted this. Resource means we intend to use it. And it can only go a down. Potential means we have an intention of nurturing it. Mm. That's a big difference. Right, right. Raj is just you know, a little bit play on words. Instead of a resource, it's a source. Humans are sources of creativity, sources of innovation, sources of progress. They're not just a tool or just a, something to be used up. They're something to be nurtured because they they can create and innovate and give back and help and help the organization to flourish and thrive. So this is unique to human beings in the sense, all life on the planet, all creatures on the planet, nature has drawn two lines for them, within which they can live and die. But for a human being, there's no top line, so he needs to be nurtured. How a human being is born as a helpless little creature, and how he grows up into, and what he or she grows up into, is a very different affair. Mm -hmm. So, what you see, when you see a child, you don't know whether this is a sage or a sorcerer or a successful human being, we don't know what they are going to be. Mm. It all depends how they're nurtured. Well, I would say, I mean, I'm not uh, giving some scientific data on this, but off the cuff I'm saying, for all other creatures, ninety percent is determined by nature. Ten percent latitude is there for them to do something individual. With human being, ten percent is by nature, ninety percent latitude is there. Mm -hmm. Because of this, nurture is the most important aspect of human life. That goes yeah. everywhere, yeah. business or otherwise. Yeah. Now, John has devoted his career and his life to improving people's health, physical health, by the food, the way it's produced, that what you put into your body makes a difference to your health. Yeah, if you give them good food, they will eat too much and get sick. <laughs> That's also possible. <laughs> You give them healthy yes. food, they won't. But I remember once you said to Shubro, he said, it's, it's possible to be vegan and, you know, gain weight or become fat, right? It's not just what you eat, how much you eat as well. And you've been working a lot on the soil issue, which is so fundamental. Uh, you see the link between the soil and also our health? The soil absolutely, health and the human absolutely. health? Absolutely. See, because what you call as my body right now is just a piece of the planet. Will we get it now? when we are alive here, or will we get it from the maggots one day? This is all the choice we have. But this is just a piece of the planet, this is just soil. What was soil yesterday became food today, what is food today will become your flesh and bone tomorrow. This is the nature of life. So, where there is no good food, nutritious food, there is no good life. Where there is no good soil, there is no question of nutritious food. 
There are some of the studies are saying, there are many studies, one thing is significant. They're saying in terms of micronutrients, if you ate orange in California in 1920s, what you got from that orange, today if you have to get the same thing, you have to eat eight oranges. I don't think, I'm, I've been asking a lot of people, have you eaten eight oranges in a day at any time? Everybody says, no, I never ate eight oranges, as if they, I'm holding them guilty. So, I'm saying we are going to a place, one reason why mental health will become a serious, serious issue in the coming years is because of lack of micronutrients. Lack of micronutrients in the food that we consume. It, lack of micronutrients is simply because depletion of life in soil. When I say depletion of life, a handful of soil can have eight to ten billion organisms. These organisms, we are starving them. How are we starving them? See, for example, if you grow, let's say, one ton of something out of the land, let's say wheat or sugarcane or whatever else you grew out of it, if you take one ton out, you're taking out one ton of organic material from the soil. How much are you putting back in the last fifty to seventy years? Very little, if at all, if you're putting any. Because of this, organisms are just vanishing. At what extent means, on an average, twenty-seven thousand species of organisms are going extinct in the world's soil today, which in another twenty-five to forty years, it'll manifest in a serious, serious problem. United Nations agencies are saying, we have soil only for another sixty years of cultivation, after that we don't have soil. What they're saying is, we must understand, if you add organic content to sand, sand becomes soil. If you take away organic content from the soil, soil becomes sand. This is desertification across the yeah. world. And unfortunately, till recently, nobody was addressing the soil. The word soil is not mentioned in any ecological disasters that we are talking about. Even in the COP26, it was not mentioned. But today, it has become an important agenda, thanks to the Safe Soil Movement and the millions of people who responded to it in a very positive way, that today it's become a main agenda to a point where European Union, we have signed a manifesto with them. Apart from that, they announced now, in COP28, I am also there in December, they have announced that soil regeneration is an important part of climate mitigation, climate change mitigation. This is a significant step. Eighty-one nations are in the process of framing soil policies. When as organic content in the soil weakens, the micronutrients that we need is absent in the food that we eat. First thing that will fail is our software. That means mental imbalances will come. World Health Organization is talking about mental health pandemic and they're going further and say in another twenty-five years there'll be a suicide pandemic. Last mm. year in 2022, over hundred thousand people in the most affluent country on the planet commits suicide in the United States. Over hundred thousand people. What for? Not because of poverty, not because of something else, simply because they're not able to manage their own minds. And the number of people who are on medication is unbelievable. So amount of money that United States is spending on its health care, I think it's nearly touching four trillion dollars. Yeah. Am I right? Four trillion dollars. For how many people? Three hundred thirty to three hundred forty million people. India's economy is four trillion. Mm -hmm. For 
1.4 billion people. So I'm saying uh, as a society becomes affluent, its healthcare bills should come down because mm. essentially wealth or affluence means, to start with it means a variety or a choice of nourishment. And secondly, a choice of lifestyle. A nation which has a choice of nourishment and there is whole foods and a choice of lifestyles, this much healthcare means obviously something is fundamentally wrong. Yeah, yeah. So this is very important that, uh, you know, very, very important that without healthy soil, there is no healthy human being. Without healthy human being, there is no healthy business or healthy anything for that matter. Yeah, and I saw this in our village in India, you know, two years ago I went, three years ago, and I said to my brother, it feels very different now. He says, yeah, there are no birds, and there's no bees, and there's no butterflies, and no caterpillars, or earth, or earthworms. Why did you go in search of birds and bees? In our village. <laughs> I never got but that this education. This in your life. <laughs> but the heavy use of chemical fertilizers and insecticides, you know, the soil became useless, and they had to pump more and more. But now we started this biodynamic agriculture. Last year I went. And we saw it, the butterflies are flying around. And you know, must come back. and see, we have created about 172,000 farmers. Mm. 172,000 farmers who have taken to tree-based agriculture. Right now we are working with 5.2 million farmers in the Kaveri Belt to transform the way they do agriculture. You must come and see these lands. In a matter of three to five years, how the land transforms itself, how the life bursts back, is unbelievable. Mm. Mm. Nature has this power, but if you take it, if you deplete it beyond a point, yeah, then counts. that yeah. bursting forth ability will go down. Yeah. It's like you can't go in Kalhari Desert and make life burst forth. Mm -hmm. It'll take too much effort mm -hmm. to do that. But the fantastic thing is, countries like Saudi Arabia, most people do not know this. Of course, Israel, uh, right now an unfortunate situation, otherwise, Israelis are growing nearly 92% of their food requirement mm -hmm. in their own country, mm -hmm. which looks like all sand. And Saudi Arabia is growing 54% of their food requirement in their deserts. Mm -hmm. But they spend a lot of dollars, of course. <laughs> they spend a lot more. But many nations are busy turning their fertile lands into deserts. Yeah. United States yeah. is big time. 50% of the U.S. soil is blown away because it's prairies. Once you disturb the surface, without vegetation, if you leave it for one season, millions of tons of soil is going away in just the winds. Well, as we come to the end of our time here, I wanted to talk about... I don't say end of my time. Why are you saying this? We can close <laughs> the okay, conversation. have no limit. You Thank say you. conversation. Okay. End of the conversation. That's true. He's saying end of my time, John. <laughs> I thought this guy has good intentions for me. <laughs> uh, we're all coming to the end of our time on this planet. <laughs> One thing that I, you know, a quote of yours that I loved, which is, you said you can expand through embrace or conquest, but you cannot include people by conquering them. And I see this in the world of business. There are many times there's a hostile takeover. One company will take over another company. And they're growing just because they have an ego that wants to be fulfilled. What is the energy behind that? How should we be thinking about there's a healthy growth and there's a compulsive growth? You know, human beings want to grow, as you said. We want to expand our, you know, go beyond limitations and boundaries. But there's a compulsive growth that then leads to 
conquest and suffering. How should we think about growth in a healthy way? See, uh, when you were born, you were born as a little baby, right? Yes. <laughs> did you grow with a lot of music and jing bang, jig jig jig? Did you grow up like that or quietly you grew up? Quietly. That's how even the biggest trees around here have mm. grown up. Mm. This is the nature of growth, if it's organic, well-nourished. If you're well-nourished, you grow quietly. Nothing came boom-boom, all right? Mm -hmm. Nothing happened in a boom-boom way. So there's no jing-bang to life. Jing-bang is only we're creating too much of that. So forcefully doing anything, anything doing forcefully. Well, today, uh, unfortunately, certain words have been confiscated by for certain people, otherwise I hesitate to use this word. See, in English language, the word rape means to take something forcefully, need not necessarily be a sexual assault. But today, even in the law, it is being defined as rape means sexual assault. But that's not how it is. English poets have written poems called Rape of the Lock and stuff like that. <laughs> because rape essentially means you took something forcefully. So, we are raping the land, we are raping the forests, we are raping the oceans, we are raping the soil. This forceful way of doing thing is not sustainable. Today, sustainability has become the key word. This goes for everything, for individual life, for society, for businesses, for nations and humanity as a whole. Sustainability means if you do anything forcefully, it is not sustainable. It's as simple as that. Whether it is in personal relationships or larger social relationships or global relationships, if you do something forcefully, it is not sustainable. This I call as just sensible living. All it takes mm. is little sense. Instead of weaving more and more philosophies, we must activate human sense, which is, uh, you know, very uncommon. <laughs> mm. And I wanted to also ask about happiness. You know, one of the things that John said to me some years ago about happiness, my daughter was struggling with something and the message was, you know, we have a right to be happy and we deserve to be happy, we can choose to be happy. But then he went further, he said, we have an ethical and moral duty to try and be happy. How do you feel about that? I wouldn't look at life that way. All I see is, when you were a child, you were naturally bubbling with joy. Somebody had to work hard to make you unhappy. Your parent had to scream to <laughs> quell the sounds of joy in the house. Mm. But today, somebody has to work hard to make you happy. The government has to work, the businesses has to work, family has to work, everybody has to work hard to keep you happy. Mm. What a tragedy! At the age of five, if you had so much joy, by the time you're thirty, you should be ecstatic by natural progression of life. So because instead of being an existential life, we have become psychological cases, we are thinking of happiness as something we must achieve. No, that was the square one of life, you were just bubbling with joy, isn't it? For nothing. If you only… stomach was full, life was great. So what is the problem now? The problem is I've grown up, I have responsibilities, I have this and that. This is all just an excuse. The problem is just this, you have not grasped the nature of your existence. You are taking yourself too seriously. You don't understand, before you and me came here, there were many smart people like you who walked this planet, countless number. Where are they? They're all topsoil. 
you are a young man, you'll go later, but I will also be topsoil. You will also, I'll bless you with a long life, but you will also become topsoil one day. So when this is the case, that our presence here is for a limited period of time, and in this cosmos, we're a minuscule life, microscopic we are, absolutely microscopic we are. We are like a speck, this speck and its thoughts, oh my god, this speck <laughs> has thoughts which can destroy the whole cosmos. Because your thought and your emotion has become bigger than cosmos. If you just understand the context of your life, that you are here for a brief amount of time and you're a tiny speck, all you can do is the best that you can do and world will be rid of you, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're joyful very soon, if you're miserable, it'll take a long time <laughs> because time is a very relative experience. If you are very joyful on a certain day, twenty-four hours, poof, goes like twen you know, ten minutes. If you're miserable, ten minutes go like twenty-four hours. So time is relative. Only miserable people can have a long life. So I bless you with a joyful and brief <laughs> life. No? Many years, but brief. Mm. Namaskaram. Thank Namaskaram. you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Namaskaram. You must come visit us sometime when okay. you had enough of home. <laughs> well, Deborah goes to India frequently. Please, you must come to India. It's a very unique space. It is uh, engineered for self-transformation. We don't subscribe to any philosophy, ideology, dogma or any religious beliefs. It's purely an experiential science exploring human possibilities. Please, you're most welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Raj, for including me. Thank you, John. Of course, thank you for being here. Bye, everybody.